the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mind-blowing telepathic aliens, dinosaur-riding youthful Napoleons, the mountain people and the valley people meet for deadly sword play, followed by a picnic lunch. Plus, the actor Bronson Pinchot delivers the first entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have an excellent interview with Robert Butner, author of Balance Point, which is a final entry in the Orphan's Legacy series. The other ones were uh, Overkill and Undercurrents. This is action-adventure on an interplanetary scale with star nations and the balance, hence part of the meaning of the title. Uh, it's kind of an interplanetary Cold War. It also is the finale for Jason Parker, a tough guy who grew up in a totalitarian state only to escape and become a top intelligence operative for Earth and uh, the free portion of the galaxy. So that's coming up. We're also beginning a wonderful novel and a wonderful reading of that novel that we'll be serializing. This is Larry Correa's hard-boiled contemporary fantasy series where magic has entered the world circa 1930, and people had developed particular talents that they can use for good or ill. The hero is a private investigator, tough guy who knows how to throw a punch and think his way out of a jam, too. That's coming up. But first, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. We talked about the new hardcovers and trade paperbacks for April last time, but April also brings a shower of great mass market paperbacks. What do we have this month, Laura? First, we have a great Andre Norton two-novel omnibus, Children of the Gates. This one contains the Norton novels Here Abide Monsters and Yearth Burden. Each one of those is about groups that have to work together in a life-threatening situation. For example, in Here Abide Monsters, it takes place on a world where Celtic fairy folk live alongside modern humans, and both are the captives of enslaving aliens. Wow, that sounds like a pure Andre Norton kind of plot. Yeah, it, it really is. And then Earth Burden is a great sort of my tribe, your tribe story where you have to learn to work together to survive on a harsh planet. And what you have here is the telepathic mountain dwellers and the rough-and-tumble plains dwellers who couldn't be more different but a mountain woman and a plainsman have to figure out how to work together after they discover a secret that could change the, the course of their world forever. Cool. Also out in April is The Heretic by Tony Daniel and David Drake. This is a novel in the Legendary General series that is helmed by David Drake and has included best-selling writers S.M. Sterling and Eric Flint. Now yours truly joins that illustrious group with The Heretic. The basic idea of the General series is that a vast galactic empire has fallen into a dark age, and one of the only artificial intelligences to survive comes to planets where even the memory of star travel is lost and picks out the one, the person, the Nemo, the person who can battle his or her way to the top, liberate the place, and set it on the road back to star-faring civilization. 
Cool. So where does the heretic fit into this? Well, the heretic is set on a world that has fallen very far indeed, uh, except for the presence of muzzle-loading muskets and a few iron implements. Humanity is thrown into uh, technology on the level with, I guess, ancient Egypt. There's a lot of ancient Egypt analogs in there. Not only that, there's a malevolent AI computer determined to keep humanity in stasis, so um, center the computer from the general series has a has a nemesis in the heretic and uh, in the upcoming sequel to it, The Savior. Uh, sounds like fun stuff. Well, it was a blast to write. So, Children of the Gates and The Heretic are now on sale at booksellers everywhere. Buy two. They make great gifts. Get two. Get one for you and one for the AI voice in your head, which I'm sure you have, don't you? I do. Wait. So, is yours the evil one? <laughs> you know it. Want to welcome Robert Butner to the podcast. Hi, Bob. Hi, Tony. It's great to be with you today. Robert Butner is the author of the award-winning Jason Wander series that began with uh, debut novel Orphanage in 2004 and continued through five books. He's continued the story of the universe found in those books with his Orphan's Legacy series, where the main character is Jason Wander's son, Jason Parker, who is engaged in a Cold War as dangerous and personally devastating as his father's hot one was. The Orphan's Legacy series now includes Overkill, Undercurrents, and current entry, Balance Point, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. Bob, did I get most of that right? Yeah, it's perfect. All right. There's some pretty interesting intelligence tradecraft and spy anecdotes that show up in Balance Point. Tell the truth, were you ever a spy? Well, I, I served as an Army intelligence officer during the 1970s, and uh, much, of, much of that time, uh, actually, I was in, uh, in the reserves, and I was working in the international oil business. At that time, it was very common for, because people in the oil business traveled to a lot of places that were interesting and otherwise inaccessible to Americans, it was pretty common for people in in that line of work to be to be asked to keep an eye out for things. Let's say it that way. Of course, I didn't do anything like that, <laughs> uh, but I knew a lot of people who did. Yeah, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So, tell us some more about your your background that you can divulge. Um, and how did you come to write science fiction? Were you reading it from a young age? I think I uh, I was reading Heinlein Juveniles when I was in oh golly, very young, young enough that people thought it was weird that I was reading books like that were that advanced I guess, and uh, I probably read I read Starship Troopers sometime around the age of thirteen, which is generally considered to be the time when everybody thinks it was the golden age of science fiction, whatever they were reading when they were thirteen. <laughs> At that time, uh, that's when I kind of got interested in it, and then as the years went by, James Bond became au courant, and uh, I noticed that he seemed to get a lot more girls than anybody in the Heinlein books did, so uh, you can do the math as to what I started reading instead. <laughs> so I got away from science fiction for a while and uh, came back to it in uh, in the... Uh, just after 2000, uh, after 9/11, actually in 2001, 
I just was inspired to write something, say something true about what the military experience was like. And I recalled a book that I assumed was obscure called Starship Troopers that I had read and that I had thought was really good, and another one that came after that called uh, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. Both of those, of course, are uh, classics of military science fiction. And I felt like both of them missed the point in, in some ways, and I wanted to correct the record a little bit. And that's how I came to write a book that was uh, in terms of the basic outline of the book, similar to both of those. But it was really kind of an allegory for the war that I thought we were going to be fighting, uh, which was going to be a long war fought in a remote place by a very few people uh, against an enemy that was might as well have been from outer space because they were so alien, so completely foreign to us. And uh, that's kind of the way that in the 10 years since it's been viewed. Yeah, I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head, as it were, with with that prediction. One more question about your background: you've you've been a lawyer, correct? That's that's right. Yeah. And but uh, you were an oil man. How what is how does that all hook up together? Okay. Well, I uh, what happened basically was that I went off to graduate school in paleontology. That was that was before paleontology was cool, before Jurassic Park. And I had done that for, for a while. I actually was a National Science Foundation fellow, and uh, which was a nice thing that, where they actually paid you to go to graduate school. And I was doing that for long enough to realize that, oh, my goodness, I really, you couldn't really make a living doing this. And I needed something to do that somebody who had high verbal SATs could do, and so I moved over to law school. And then the two the two disciplines, the fact that I knew my way around uh, geology, I'd done a lot of part-time work on, on oil rigs and hard rock mining in remote areas, and that happened to hook up very well with the kinds of things that lawyers for oil companies did. So that's how I got into that line of work. So in in Balance Point, we're in a interstellar cold war between the Trueborns and the planet of Yabbit. Uh, is that how you say it? That's correct. And and its allies or or dominions. Can you explain the political and technological world of world of Jason Parker? Uh, yeah, the, essentially we're continuing the universe that that evolved in the course of the the, the first five books and is, is uh, I think people who've been following the series have probably figured out by now Jason is is in fact the, the son of the protagonist in the in the Jason Wander books uh, even though they were they were separated at birth at the risk of giving something away they're finally going to get back together anyway uh, the the world, essentially, as it's evolved, is that uh, uh, we've rather suddenly found ourselves, suddenly within the course of maybe the next century, in possession of a technology that allows us to visit other planets, mostly because we stole it from the aliens. And we find that the aliens also were uh, using us as, as slaves and carrying us off to 
distant realms 30,000 years ago, and so now we've got 500 worlds that we've found so far that are inhabited by human beings, and the worlds themselves are run the gamut, all sorts of all sorts of places. And so that's the world in which Jason Parker finds himself, and uh, he grows up on Yavit, which is effectively the, the the evil empire superpower, and then he winds up working for the good guy superpower, the Earth, and uh, and its allies. And that's uh, that's the situation, and those two superpowers are engaged in something called the Cold War that's referred to as Cold War II, which up until a couple of weeks ago we thought was at least 100 years in the future. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I'm going to ask you about that later perhaps. Have all the worlds that are among those 500 worlds, they've had humans on them for 30,000 years and the humans haven't been in contact during that time until recently? Actually, of the worlds that uh, where the humans wound up, nobody really knows what happened 30,000 years ago. They don't know whether the humans were uh, were aboard the alien ships, like uh, you know, like like rats on a cargo vessel, and snuck down the hawser line when they when they landed. Nobody's exactly sure how that all came to be, but some of the worlds, uh, and they call those the seeded worlds, uh, are the worlds where there are humans who have survived and have basically grown through a recorded history that's dictated by the kind of a world they're in, and uh, and therefore they're all a little bit different. But then there are also a lot of worlds where there are no humans that are genuinely alien, and uh, we see both kinds in throughout the course of the uh, of the uh, Orphan's Legacy books. What about Yavet? Is it a seeded world or not? Yeah, it's one of the seeded worlds, and it differs from the Earth. Uh, frankly, uh, it, people have said before that there are elements of allegory to, uh, to my work, and uh, Yavit is, is pretty clearly uh, an allegorical reference as the competing superpower to the former Soviet Union, uh, though it has elements of, uh, of uh, communist China. Some of the yeah. some of the other hangers-on, like uh, North Korea or perhaps Iran, uh, it's a, an autocratic world, and uh, and it it also is a world that, like China and like the USSR, if you look at it, uh, you know people complain about the United States environmental profile. But if you if you've ever been to an oil field in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union. The, the the worst oil field you've ever seen in the United States looks a whole lot better than the best oil field in the former Soviet Union. So the other thing about Yavit is that uh, environmentally it's it's a real horror. The funny thing is the Yavi, kind of like the Russians, I think, or the Chinese, don't view that as a negative. They view that as progress. So that's a, that's a difference between them and, uh, and and the trueborns, which reflect it, uh, at least in idealized form, uh, what the Western democracies are like. Yeah, the uh, it, it really does seem that environmental degradation is is just a a byproduct of almost all totalitarian societies. 
yeah, I think it 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 sort of it sort of comes with the territory. I I think there are too many other of the competing priorities. Uh, you have to you really need. I think it takes a democracy for those priorities to to rise to the level where they get acted on. Compared to in an authoritarian state, uh, there are other things that that come first, generally speaking. Yeah. But the Trueborns, uh, the the Earth people, the democracy, they're, they're not all bright and shiny. This is not a, a complete uh, black and white sort of situation. They they have their their issues as well, just as we do. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, one of the one of the themes there, and that's one of the reasons that it's nice that I have a protagonist who who grew up on Yavit, who grew up in the in the totalitarian society. Even though he was born to parents in the in the what I'll call let's just call it the Western democracies, he always sees the other side of the coin. And of course, his partner, who is also his lover, who is a, a female, I guess I need to say that these days. Kit. Kit is yeah. Kit is is uh, is from a very wealthy and politically connected family. And so the two of them are at loggerheads frequently with regard to uh, the, the the warts on on democracy. Uh, I think, in fact, uh, I think more than one of my characters has reflected that, like Churchill said, that uh, it, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for every other form that's been tried. <laughs> I think didn't Heinlein also, uh, if not say that uh, first. Um, uh, Say that somewhere as a. I I think it's usually that quote is attributed to to Churchill, to, uh, Churchill but uh, uh, there's no question that that Heinlein Heinlein was an unabashed cold warrior. I don't think there's any secret about that. He, he was uh, he was kind of a bundle of contradictions in that regard. He was very much a libertarian. If you've read the excellent. Uh, biography of Heinlein that uh, Bill Patterson wrote. We have had Bill Patterson uh, on the podcast to talk about that great Heinlein biography he wrote. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful book, and, uh, and uh, I think Heinlein is, a, is, like I said, that wonderful bundle of contradictions that, uh, that democracies tend to produce. So in, uh, in the balance point universe there are two big secrets that kind of define the political landscape everybody's the, the major powers both have nuclear weapons but only one side has starship drive uh, yeah that's right and uh, that technology uh, again this is it's really an allegorical reference to to the the first guys who got the atomic bomb who were the Western democracies, or the United States in particular, and the conceit of this universe is that the Western democracies effectively kept it and were able to contain the authoritarian societies because they could have all the nukes they want. If they couldn't get them anywhere, if they couldn't deliver them, then they were sort of shut out, and they resented that. So that's uh, that's yeah. And I think in a nutshell. And again, the uh, it's not that the Western democracies were all that brilliant. They were kind of lucky 
that they came across the uh, they came across starship technology because they were the ones who waged the war against the aliens uh, in the first five books and captured a ship and eventually figured out how the aliens were were getting around the universe when we were condemned basically to uh, slower than light travel and couldn't do anything with that. So what a lot of the Yahweh, uh, the bad guys, uh, are trying to do is to is to get some starship technology so they can uh, equal um, equal Earth technology. With that, the... absolutely, and that's 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 the crux of it. And it, if anything, this allegory you could almost call it an alternate history in that way, in that uh, it imagines the situation that might have obtained if instead of the Russians stealing A-bomb technology from the United States and Britain within three years after the detonation of bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, if the Russians had continued to be shut out and the United States and, and the Western democracies had, uh, had possessed that ultimate hammer for a long time. So that's, a, again, like I say, that's an imagining of that. And uh, I believe... A fellow just recently said, I believe his name was Putin, he recently <laughs> said that if you compress a spring long enough, when it finally springs back, it really springs back hard. And I think that's the situation with, with the Yavi. I hope not, the uh, situation with Russia. That is, that the Yavi, having, having been denied the Starship technology for so long, uh, really want it badly and are willing to take a lot of risks they're willing to risk nuclear war, a nuclear war that they'll be annihilated in, to get it. Well, there's another uh, portion of that universe that, that I don't think is allegorical, but just kind of fun, which is the Grezen. Um, you've created a telepathic uh, species in the Grezen, and they're also, like, really, uh, really scary. Um, can you tell us how that society works? Because it's really fascinating in the book. Yeah, well, basically the, uh, the the society such as it is, I guess I was trying to imagine how a libertarian society could actually work. And it struck me that probably about the only way you could do it was if you, if, if individuals just really didn't need to interact with one another for any reason. They didn't need to cooperate because that's when you start to, to need some of the other institutions. And it struck me that the most similar society that we have here on Earth to that uh, actually are some of the other very, very smart mammals on Earth, the, the uh, killer whales. And they're basically organized as pretty much absolute matriarchies, just a, a groups of, of matriarchies that can communicate over vast distances uh, sonically the pod units of uh, killer whales are generally centered around the the common mother of of all of those offspring, and uh, that's really what the what the Grezen are like. And because they're terrestrial and rather than aquatic species, their uh, their method of communicating with one another over long distances is that they happen to be telepathic. I can't take credit for inventing that. I, that's another one of those Golden Age stories that I, I read. It was a 
series of stories that was eventually folded into a novel by A.E. Van Vogt, a uh, classic novel from the uh, late 50s, I believe, called The War Against the Raw. Yeah, sure. And his telepathic monsters uh, that didn't want to be found out as being intelligent uh, were called the Eswalls. And I thought that probably if somebody saw one of these things, they probably would think it was more like a grizzly than like an Eswall. And so I called him the Grezen instead. But I, I acknowledged uh, the debt I owed to Ivan Vogt for that uh, for that creation in the in the first book. Our our heroes are friends with um, a Grezen named Mort, and the human humanity in general has been studying them, and. The implications of um, having telepathy would be a, would be a huge thing militarily. Oh, absolutely! And in fact, uh, the allegory becomes—it's—it's it's really amazing the way this has worked out. I think in 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 a couple of ways, with regard to the, the fact that really the central conceit of the uh, of this story, or the central plot element of this story, is that. Uh, is that there is in this in this imagined future universe uh, massive electronic surveillance, and what's interesting is that the response to that uh, has been um, well. One thing is that uh, that lo and behold, the Western democracies have figured out that boy, you know, it's great that we can read everybody's email, we can find out all this stuff. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually get inside their heads? And so that, uh, that of course, has driven the relationship with the Grezen from from day one, both for the both for the good guys uh, and for some of the evil people who see ways to profit by uh, obtaining the secret of telepathy. And so there, there's that. And then on top of that, what it's come to is that. The electronic surveillance is so pervasive in the future that people have, that anybody who's got something that they really want to keep secret, they communicate, uh, they communicate it by hard copy. And, uh, and that, of course, that, that drives a lot of the things that, uh, that, that happen and a lot of things that are, that the uh, protagonist has to go through. And, of course, the really interesting thing about that is, I mean, when I wrote the book, uh, if you ask somebody who Snowden was, they would say, oh, he's the bombardier in Catch-22 who died. <laughs> and today the answer to that question would be very different. And then in addition to that, uh, I was really interested that just, uh, I think it was just yesterday, the former President Carter was being interviewed and he took his uh, the current administration to task and said that in fact he had he no longer communicated anything that he really thought he wanted to keep private electronically. He actually wrote it down. He now writes it down and puts it in an envelope and puts the letter in the post office box himself because he doesn't. He, he assumes now that the government is listening to everything. That. I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this, even though this was written before all this stuff started to come to light. One of the really interesting aspects of it is, well, okay, so what would that mean? For example, wouldn't that revive the art of forgery? 
if we're going back to written communications again. And suddenly forgers would be would be in great demand yeah. where they haven't been uh, uh, lately. A lot and, of uh, when everything gets signed electronically and transmitted electronically and uh, and digitally. So uh, again, it's it's kind of interesting how this has worked out. And they've I've, my books have been praised at various times in the past because they've happened to come out right spot on with some development that hadn't occurred when the books were written, but popped into the news just as they came out. And uh, here we've got both a, a protagonist in in Balance Point, whose name is Max Polian, and he happens to be a, he appears in the first book as a mid-level semi-military intelligence officer, and he was actually modeled on uh a guy that I came to know of during my days in intelligence. His name was Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and and now in, in the third book, Max Polian or, has risen, like his real-life counterpart, Vladimir Putin, uh, to prominence and wants to reclaim uh, the glories that are due to, to, uh, to his oppressed, in his view, nation. And I think readers will enjoy spending some time in uh, in Max Polian's head. Because I, I'm afraid it's a kind of a lot like being in Vladimir Putin's head. Well, that's scary. <laughs> but, uh, it, it really is scary if you, once you've read the book and you realize uh, how that turns out. The characters in the book are really are really fun and fascinating. Although there's this this huge backdrop as we've been talking about, it's really the characters that that animate the thing. Um, like Jason's girlfriend Kit, she's very interesting. She's a ruthless killer. Um, she's she's ready to kill anybody that she, even people she might she might care about. Tell us about Kit and have you known people like that? Well, I I, uh, I don't want to give too much away about uh, about. Kit's personality, but I think I think you find people who are who are like Kit, and they aren't necessarily people who. Uh, well, let me put it this way: the people who you run across in the intelligence community or in other places who do the who do dirty deeds and do them dirt cheap are often people who have nothing left to lose. On the other hand, there are also true-believing ideologues who will do things because they feel they have to be done to to make the world a better place. And it's kind of, it gets kind of murky about where, where the right and the wrong of that are. And Kit's character explores that. And, uh, and Jason, on the other hand, who, who comes from another, uh, uh, the other side of the tracks, if you will, he, he doesn't see the world that way at all. And uh, the two of them, like as, so, as happens so many times with couples, are opposites who attract. And Kit is, uh, as I say, is, is uh, a, a, a child of privilege, uh, for whom things have always worked out, and therefore she is a risk taker. Jason, on the other hand, is the absolute opposite of that, 
somebody who's really, really uh, almost literally grown up in the sewers who believes that uh, the universe is going to bleep him because it always has. And uh, and the two of them uh, make decisions accordingly, and they, they their decisions conflict. It, it makes for some very interesting, I, I think, some very interesting conflict between the two characters. Your description of the ring, the sort of place where the lower class are exiled on Yavit, is, is kind of chilling. <laughs> Um, it really is an excellent de- depiction of a totalitarian society where life is just it's not even cheap it's it's practically worthless um, yeah and I, I think i'm I, i'm I'm looking there I think there are the example that I would have to have to have to look for, to first uh, would certainly be frankly uh either well you look at, at China which is maybe evolving a little bit toward uh, valuing human life a wee bit, but then you look at North Korea, and I don't see much evidence of that in North Korea at all. And I think that is, in fact, uh, the society that you see. Uh, Yavid actually has evolved as a as a very much an exaggerated totalitarian society, where literally the people who who do the work have been, over time, selected by the government to be smaller people because they can work in smaller spaces, they can uh, they, they consume less, fewer resources, they, they literally breathe less air, they eat less food, but they can still, they can still run the machines that are down in the lower levels. And so you've got this vast network of uh, uh, sub, substrate of society that uh, they actually refer to themselves as, as, as peeps, little people, and and they are uh, and they're overseen by people by people who are literally uh, a head taller than they are, and I don't think that is a whole lot different than than the reality that you see in a in a state like North Korea. So in a way, they they have almost speciated. That is, become a, a, the peeps have become almost another species. They're smaller. They're different in, in uh, many ways because of the long term oppression they've had to live under. No, I think that's I think that's that's accurate. Though uh, clearly they do interbreed, and uh, in fact, uh, again, at the risk of giving something away, there's a uh, the short story that uh, I wrote for. The uh, Bain free story involves a uh, a person of of normal size whose father, uh, even though it's not specified, was in fact a, was in fact Pete. He's a, he's a little person, uh, so even though that doesn't come out in in this story at least. This is um, magic and other honest lies. Magic and other honest lies. Yes. Which we just presented last week um, in audio form here on the podcast. It's a great and story. It was wonderful to hear hear those words and and realize that they actually uh, uh, came together and and, uh, and emerged from the, the mouth of P.J. Mask, uh, and they sounded wonderful, which uh, is always heartening to an author. 
you're a cold warrior. You, you grew up the, during that time, and so did I. I'm probably 15 years younger than you, something like that. And I, you know, I grew up in the in the day when at any moment we could all destroy ourselves. Right. Um, and it feels to me, at least, like we might be heading back down that path. Do you have any predictions? Since a lot of your predictions seem to have come true. Well, honestly, uh, I think what for some reason everybody seems to have forgotten that the United States and Russia still possess enough nuclear weapons and the delivery systems for those nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. That's not even counting the wannabes like North Korea, Israel's uh, got nukes, India, Pakistan, China. I mean, if anything, uh, I think that the world uh, remains a, a very dangerous place indeed. It's not on the same hair trigger. Uh, I can recall having a conversation with a fellow uh, who was actually a pilot of a Navy anti-submarine plane during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said, yeah, we, we had been training for a few weeks during the crisis uh, where we would go out and, and we, would, we would practice very low-level runs and we would, we would drop our payload uh, in the water. And I said, uh, so what was that all about? And he said, well, actually, we were, we were actually in the air and we were, we were bound for Havana, Cuba. There was a Russian uh, warship at anchor in Havana Harbor. We were, we were on our way in, and we were about four hours out when we got turned around. And I said, well, what in the world would an anti-submarine plane have been able to do to, uh, to a Russian warship? And he said, oh, well, we had a nuclear depth charge on board. <laughs> I said, oh, well, that would do it. I guess so. And I, I and I was I was struck. That was perhaps the most uh, the most concrete face to face example uh, I had of how close we really were, and subsequently how close we remained for the next you know well until the wall came down. And even then, the nukes were still out there. Heck, the Ukrainians had them. Sure. And foolishly gave them back to the Russians based on the Russians' promise that uh, we'll never invade you. <laughs> Do you think we're in an interregnum that, in in the same way that World War One and World War Two are are very essentially related and might be considered the same war with a with a depression in between, as you say? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that is a, uh, an observation that uh, that Jason Parker, as a as a kid who grew up on Yabit after he comes to Earth and and uh, takes a look at our politics. He has some trenchant observations to make about about how we got to where we got to. But uh, I I think there are there are really many dissimilarities uh, between World War One, World War Two, as opposed to the the initial Cold War and where we are now. The world is a more interconnected place. There are there are other players on the scene on both sides of the fence that 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 uh, are in much different positions now. I think, for example, uh, you know, the Russians. I 
can probably get an earful from the guy that owns the Brooklyn Nets from time to time uh, about why he really wants good relations with the United States. And uh, I think that those kinds of interconnections, and that was, of course, one of the one of the methods of containment that uh, I think that helped us out after the end of the of the Cold War proper was the idea that that if we're sufficiently interconnected as a world society, that we won't get back to that time. Now I'm crossing my fingers, <laughs> but I was I was also chilled that I heard an interview during the uh, Sochi Olympic Games between a sportscaster and the editor of the New Yorker magazine who had lived in Russia for a number of years. And he said, this of course pre before the intervention in, in Crimea, uh, he said, well, you have to understand that uh, after after the Soviet Union came apart, that uh, they the, the place was in a shambles, and Miss Putin, when he came to power there and uh, and and rebuilt the national pride, that that was was something that that the Rus that the Russians feel they really needed, and and I thought, my goodness, you know, this sounds exactly like. Most of the history I've read, most of the things that I've read about Germany in the 1930s and, uh, and the rise to power of Hitler. And I thought, next thing you know, he's going he's gonna to march into some country like uh, Hitler marched into Czechoslovakia and say, well, there are a whole bunch of, of our Germans there who want to be part of, uh, of Germany again. The parallels of, of the two situations are, are impossible to ignore even though you might not want to draw too many um, long-term conclusions from them. It's, but, yeah. Um, well, they're, they're, well, they're impossible to ignore, but I've seen polls that indicate that uh, most Americans are ignoring them and, and don't consider that, uh, that, that that's a, an incident of any moment. <laughs> well, most Americans ignore everything until it comes to their doorstep. <laughs> yeah, this... yeah that, that, that's another point Jason Parker makes. We don't want to give the impression that uh, that the book is all about these uh, huge concerns without bringing up the fact that it's it's really well written and it's got a lot of um, humor and it's got a lot of snappy dialogue and it's just a fun read. I think uh, in that Publishers Weekly when they talked about quips, it struck me that you know that's one thing that a lot of the a lot of people who write reviews that I read online of the books, you know, just readers not. They make the point that you know these these things are funny. I mean, the, the, this dialogue makes me laugh out loud sometimes, and I and I I read it to my wife, and she laughs too, and stuff like that. And I and I I, I hope at least that it's there. I certainly I certainly work on mm -hmm. most of that dialogue and and a lot of those situations for an inordinate amount of time to get them right. As, as you probably noticed from the uh, from the symmetry of the titles of the three books, uh, Overkill, Undercurrents, and Balance Point, that uh, the third book in that series was designed to end at a sort of equilibrium. Uh, I, I tried to answer a lot of questions. It's 
one of the reasons it took so long to between the time that undercurrents came out and when balance point came out was that there were so many so many storylines that had to be resolved and, and I wanted to resolve them in, in a satisfactory way. The book is Balance Point, book three in the Orphan's Legacy series by Robert Butner. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for having me, Tony. And now we begin the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Larry Correa is the creator of the Monster Hunter series, including Monster Hunter International, Monster Hunter Vendetta, Monster Hunter Alpha, Monster Hunter Legion, and this summer's new entry, Monster Hunter Nemesis. Larry is also the author of another series, The Grimnor Chronicles, set in an alternate 1930s world of tommy guns and tough guys where magical powers have come into the world and changed everything. The first novel in The Grimnor Chronicles is Hard Magic. Here's with part one of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Audible Frontiers presents Hard Magic Written by Larry Correa Read by Bronson Pinchot Prologue One general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. The appearance of esoteric and ethereal abilities, magical fires and feats of strength in recent decades are the purest demonstration of natural selection. Surely, in time, that general law will require the extinction of traditional man. Charles Darwin on the Origin of Man and Selection of Human Magical Abilities, 1879. El Nido, California. Okies. The Portuguese farmer spat on the ground, giving the evil eye to the passing automobiles weighed down with baskets, bushels, and crates. The cars just kept coming up the dusty San Joaquin Valley Road like some kind of oaky wagon train. He left to make sure all his valuables were locked up and his Sears and Roebuck single-shot 12-gauge was loaded. The tool shed was locked and the shotgun was in his hands when the short little farmer returned to watch. One of the Ford Model Ts rattled to a stop in front of the farmhouse fence. The old farmer leaned on his shotgun and waited. His son would talk to the visitors. The boy spoke English. So did he, but not as well, just good enough to take the Dodge truck into Merced to buy supplies, and it wasn't like the mangled inbred garbage dialect the Okies spoke was English anyway. The farmer watched the transients carefully as his son approached the automobile. 
They were asking for work. They were always asking for work. Ever since the dusts had blown up and cursed their stupid land, they'd all driven west in some oaky exodus until they ran out of farmland and stopped to harass the Portuguese who had gotten here first. Of course they'd been here first, like he gave a shit if these people were homeless or hungry. He'd been born in a hut on the tiny island of Terceira and had milked cows every single day of his life until his hands were leather bags so strong he could bend pipe. The San Joaquin Valley had been a hole until his people had shown up, covered the place in Holsteins, and put the Mexicans to work. Now these Okies show up, build tent cities, bitch about how the government should save them and sneak out at night to rob the Catholics. It really pissed him off. It always amazed him how much the Okies could fit onto an old Model T. He'd come from Terceira on a steamship, spending weeks in a steel hull between hot steam pipes. He'd owned a blanket, one pair of pants, a hat, and a pair of shoes with holes in them. He'd worked his ass off in a Portuguese town in Rhode Island, neck deep in fish guts, married a nice Portuguese girl, even if she was from the screwed-up island of St. George, which everybody from Terceira knew was the ass-crack of the Azores, and saved up enough money doing odd jobs to come out here to another Portuguese town and buy some scrawny Holsteins. Five cows, a bull, and twenty years of back-breaking labor had turned into a hundred and twenty cows, fifty acres, a Ford tractor, a Dodge pickup, a good milk barn, and a house with six whole rooms. By Portuguese standards, he was living like a king. So he wasn't going to give these Okies shit. They weren't even Catholic. They should have to work like he did. He watched the oaky father talking to his son as his son patiently explained for the hundredth time that there wasn't any work and that they needed to head toward Los Banos or maybe Chowchilla, not that they were going to work anyway when they could just break into his milk barn and steal his tools to sell for right-gut moonshine again. His grandkids were poking their heads around the house, checking out the Model T, but he'd warned them enough times about the dangers of outsiders and they stayed safely away. He wasn't about to have his family corrupted from their good Catholic work ethic by being exposed to bums. Then he noticed the girl. She was just another scrawny, oaky kid, barely even a woman yet, so it was surprising that she hadn't already had three kids from her brothers. But there was something strange about this one, something he'd seen before. The girl glanced his way, and he knew then what had set him off. She had gray eyes. Mary, mother of God, the old farmer muttered, fingering the crucifix at his neck. Not this shit again. His first reaction was to walk away, leave it alone. It wasn't any of his business, and the girl would probably be dead soon enough, impaled through her guts by some random tree branch or a flying bug stuck in an artery, and he didn't even know if the gray eyes meant the same thing to an oki as it did to the Portuguese. For all he knew, she was a normal girl who just looked funny, and she'd go have a long and stupid life in an oki tent city, popping out fifteen kids who'd also break into his milk barn and steal his tools. The girl was studying him, dirty hair whipping in the wind, and he could just tell, "'Fucking shit, damn!' he said in English, which was the first English any immigrant who worked with cows learned. 
He'd seen what happened to the gray eyes when they weren't taught correctly, and as much as he despised Okies, he didn't want to see one of their kids with their brains spread all over the road because they'd magically appeared in front of a speeding truck. Leaning the shotgun against the tractor tire, he approached the Model T. The Oki parents looked at him with mild belligerence as he approached their daughter. The old farmer stopped next to the girl's window. There were half a dozen other kids crammed in there, but they were just regular desperate and starving Okies. This one was special. He lifted his hat so she could see that his eyes were the same color as hers. He tried his best English. You, girl, gray eyes. She pointed at herself, curious, but didn't speak. He nodded. You, jump, travel? She didn't understand, and now her idiot parents were staring at him in slack-jawed ignorance. The old farmer took one hand and held it out in a fist. He suddenly opened it. Poof! Then he raised his other hand as far away as possible. Poof! And made a fist. She smiled and nodded her head vigorously. He grinned. She was a traveler, all right. You know about what she does? the Oki father asked. The old farmer nodded, finding his own magic inside and poking it to wake it up. Then he was gone, and instantly he was on the other side of the Model T. He tapped the Oki mother on the arm through the open window, and she shrieked. All his grandkids cheered. They loved when he did that. His son just rolled his eyes. The Oki father looked at the Portuguese farmer, back at his daughter, and then back to the farmer. The gray-eyed girl was happy as could be that she'd found somebody just like her. The father scowled for a long time, glancing again at his strange child that had caused them so much grief, and then at all the other starving mouths he had to find a way to feed. Finally he spoke. I'll sell you her for twenty dollars. The old farmer thought about it. He didn't need any more people eating up his food. But his brother and sisters had all ended up dead before they had mastered traveling, and this was the first other person like him he'd seen in twenty years. But he also hadn't gotten where he was by getting robbed by Okies. Make it ten. The girl giggled and clapped. New York City, New York the richest man in the world stepped into the elevator lift and looked in distaste at the gleaming silver buttons. The message had said to come alone, so he did not even have one of his usual functionaries to perform the service of requesting the correct floor. Rather than soiling his hands or a perfectly good handkerchief, he sighed, tapped onto the lowest level of his power, and pushed the button for the penthouse suite with his mind. Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant, billionaire industrialist, could not tolerate filth. A man of his stature simply did not get his hands dirty. He had people for that. The steel doors closed. They were carved with golden figures of muscular workers creating the American dream through their sweat and industry, under a rising sun emitting rays as straight as a Tesla cannon. He sniffed the air... The elevator car seemed clean. The hotel was considered a five-star luxury establishment, but Cornelius just knew that there were germs everywhere. Dis 
disgusting, diseased, tiny plague nodules just itching to get on his skin. Cornelius understood the true nature of the man who was staying in this hotel, and he must have ridden in this very car. Cornelius shuddered as he squeezed his arms and briefcase closer to his sides, careful not to touch the walls. He could afford the finest healers. In fact, he was one of the only men in the world that had an actual mender on his personal staff, but nothing could stop the blight of a pale horse. And it was that foul power that brought him here today, reduced to a mere collar. Cornelius had tried to seek out others, once under a gypsy tent on Coney Island, again in a tiny shack in the Louisiana bayou, but those had been frauds, charlatans, wastes of his valuable time. He tapped his foot impatiently. After what seemed like an eternity, the doors whisked open. A tuxedoed servant was waiting for him, an older negro with stark white hair. The servant bowed his head. Good evening, Mr. Stuyvesant. Mr. Harkness is waiting on a balcony. May I take your coat, sir? Not necessary. My business will not take long. The servant studied him with cunning eyes. Of course, sir. Would you care for a drink? Mr. Harkness has a selection of the finest. As if I would drink anything here, Cornelius sputtered. The notion of ingesting something from the household of a pale horse was madness. Take me to him immediately. Of course, sir. The servant led the way down the marble hall. Carved busts of long-dead Greeks watched him from pedestals, judging. Cornelius hated statues. Statues made him prickly. Even the giant idolized bronze of himself at the new super-dirigible dock bearing his name atop the new Empire State Building bothered him. Lots of things made Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant uncomfortable, including this servant. He did not like the way he had examined him like he was being sized up. The information he'd gathered on Harkness indicated that the man surrounded himself with other like-minded actives. There were many who would kill a pale horse on basic principles, so it made sense to have loyal staff with power for security. He idly wondered what kind of active the old servant was. Probably something barbaric, like a brute, or even worse, a torch. That would seem to suit a race that was so easily inflamed by its passions. Mr. Harkness is through here, sir. The servant paused at the fine wood and thick glass door leading to the balcony. He turned the knob and opened it. He prefers the fresh air. Will there be anything else? Cornelius did not bother to respond as he stepped onto the balcony. His time was valuable, more valuable than any man in the world, more valuable than emperors, kings, czars, kaisers, and especially that imbecile Herbert Hoover, and the very idea that he was reduced to having to take time from his busy schedule to meet someone on their terms rather than his own was blatantly offensive. To further the slight, Harkness was leaning on his balcony overlooking the city, placing his back toward the richest man in the world, as if Manhattan were somehow more important than Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant himself. The balcony lights had been extinguished so as not to hamper the view. 
the city was illuminated forty stories below by electric lights and flashing marquees. Thousands of automobiles filled the streets, bustling even at this hour, and overhead a passing dirigible train floated in the amber spotlights like a herd of sea cows. Cornelius snorted in greeting. Mr. Stuyvesant. The pale horse didn't bother to turn around. His voice was neutral, flat. I was just admiring your marvelous city. Have a seat. Cornelius felt a single drop of sweat roll down his neck. It was shameful, but he found that he was actually frightened. He glanced at the pair of chairs, fine, stuffed leather things that in any other scenario would be inviting to rest his ponderous bulk. But at that moment all he could imagine were the horrible diseases crawling on the cushions. I said, Have a seat, Harkness repeated, still not turning around. His accent was indeterminate, his pronunciation awkward. You are a guest of mine. I would not harm a guest. I am a civilized man, Mr. Stuyvesant. Cornelius sat, vowing that he would throw this suit into the fireplace as soon as he got home. Then he would have his personal healer expend a month's worth of power checking his health. He would probably burn the Cadillac car he had traveled in, maybe the driver too, just to be on the safe side. Harkness left the railing and took the other seat. He did not offer his hand. He was older than Cornelius had expected, tall and thin, face lined with creases and blue eyes that sparked with an unnerving energy. His hair was receding, and what remained was artificially blackened. His tailored suit was as fine as could be had, and his tie was made of silk as red as fresh blood. He smiled, and his teeth were slightly yellow in the dim city light. Smoke? Cornelius looked down at the wooden humidor on the table between them. The cigars were sorely tempting, but the very thought of touching his lips with an item tainted by Harkness's evil made his stomach royal. No, thank you. Harkness nodded in understanding as he puffed on his own Cuban. Straight to the chase, then. I was informed that you were looking for me. Nobody can ever know we spoke. Cornelius insisted he was the founder and owner of United Blimp and Freight, the primary shareholder in Federal Steel and the man that bankrolled the development of the Peace Ray. He'd sired children who had gone on to be ambassadors to powerful nations, senators, congressmen, and even a governor. A Stuyvesant could not be seen consorting with such sordid types. I assure you I am a man of discretion. Harkness exhaled a pungent tobacco cloud, not seeming to notice his guest's discomfort. Cornelius cringed, trying not to inhale smoke that had actually been inside the very lungs of such a pestilent creature. You are a hard man to find, Mr. Harkness, the billionaire said, aware that he had to tread carefully, even with eight decades of mankind dealing with the presence of powers, of actual magic to the point that they were just an accepted part of life in most of the world, the pale horse was such a rarity that most still considered it to be a myth. 
crude anti-magic propaganda created to sow fear and distrust in the hearts of the masses. Men of your skills are especially rare. Yes. What is it you were told I am? Harkness asked rhetorically, examining the ash on the end of his cigar. Cornelius hesitated, not sure if he should answer, but growing tired of the awkward silence, he finally spoke. I was told you are a pale horse. Harkness laughed hard, slapping his knee. I like that, so biblical, so much nicer than plague-bearer, or grim-reaper, or angel of death. That title has gravitas, pale horse. You, sir, have made my day. Perhaps I shall add that to my business cards. His pronunciation was stilted, with pauses between random words. Cornelius found it almost hypnotic and realized he was nervously smiling along with the other man's mirth. Then Harkness abruptly quit laughing, and his voice turned deadly serious. So who must die? You presume much, Cornelius said defensively. If you just wanted to merely curse someone and make their hair fall out or to give them... Boils, fits, or incontinence. There are far easier actives to reach than I. Harkness's smile was unnerving. People come to me when they desire something epic. The industrialist swallowed and placed his briefcase on the table. He unlocked it and then turned it so Harkness could see inside. It was filled with neatly stacked and meticulously counted banknotes and a single newspaper clipping. Cornelius quickly snatched his hand away before the pale horse could touch the contents, as if his power might somehow be transmitted through the leather. The pale horse did not seem to notice the money. He gently removed the yellowed clipping, took a pair of spectacles from his breast pocket, set them atop his hawk-like nose and began reading. After a moment, he removed the glasses and returned them and the clipping to his pocket. An important man? Very well. What will it be? Bone rot? Consumption? Cancers of the brain? Or bowel? Syphilis? Leprosy? I can do anything from a minor vapor to turn his joints to sand while his skin boils off in a cancerous sludge. I am an encyclopedia of affliction, sir. Cornelius bobbed his head in time with a litany of diseases. Uh, all of them. I see. Harkness seemed to approve. Very well, but first I must know. Yes, Cornelius answered hesitantly. The hairs on the back of his neck were standing up. Why, a man such as you has no shortage of killers to 
choose from, why not a knife in the back, a bullet in the head? You yourself are a mover, why not just invite him to a balcony such as this and shove him off? It would even look like a suicide, which would be particularly scandalous in the papers. How? Cornelius sputtered. His power was a secret. Me? A magical? Who told you such slanderous lies? Harkness shrugged. I have a trained eye, Mr. Stuyvesant. Now, answer my question. Why do you need me to curse this man? Cornelius felt his face flush with anger. No matter how dangerous Harkness was, Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant was not about to have his motives questioned by a mere hireling. He pushed himself away from the table and rose, bellowing, Why you? I do not want him dead. That is far too good a fate for one such as he. I want him to suffer first. I want him to know he's dying, and I want him to pray to his ineffectual God to save him as his body rots and stinks and melts to the blackest filth. I want it to hurt, and I want it to be embarrassing. I want his lungs to fill with pus. I want his balls to fall off, and I want him to piss fire. I want his loved ones to look away in disgust, and I want it to take a very very long time. Harkness nodded, his face now an emotionless mask. I can do this thing for you, but first I must ask, what terrible thing did this man do to deserve such a fate? The billionaire paused, pudgy hands curled into fists. He lowered his voice before continuing. He had planned this revenge for years. It was only the purity of the hate for his enemy that drove him to this place. He took something, someone, from me. Leave it at that. Cornelius tried to calm himself. He was not a man given to such unseemly outbursts. Will that do? It is enough. Cornelius realized he was standing, but it did make him feel more in control, more in his element. He gestured at the open briefcase. I was given your name by an associate. I believe that this is the same amount that he paid for your services. Rockefeller had warned Cornelius about how expensive the pale horse would be, but it would be so very worth the money. Take it. The other man shook his head. No, I don't think so. What? Cornelius objected. Was he going to try and shake him down for more money than Rockefeller? The nerve! How dare you! Harkness leaned back in his chair, puffing on the cigar. He took it away from his mouth and smiled without any joy. I don't want your money. Mr. Stuyvesant, I want 
something else. Cornelius trembled. Of course he'd heard the otter stories about the pale horses, the rarest of the actives, but he had paid them no heed. He was a man of science, not superstition. Sure, he had magic himself. Nowadays, one in a hundred Americans had some small measure, but it didn't mean he understood how it actually worked. One in a thousand had access to greater power being actual actives, but men like Harkness were something different, something rare and strange, themselves oddities in an odd bunch. Hesitantly, he spoke. Do, do you want my soul? This time, Harkness really did laugh, almost choking on his cigar. Now, that's funny. Do I look like a spiritualist? I'm certainly not the devil, Mr. Stuyvesant. I do not even know if I believe in such preposterous things. What would I even do with your soul if I had it? That was a relief, even if Cornelius wasn't particularly sure that he had a soul. He didn't want to deed it over to a man like Harkness. I don't know, Cornelius shrugged. I just thought. Harkness was still chuckling. No, nothing so mysterious, all I want is a favor. That caused Cornelius to pause. A favor? Harkness was done laughing. Yes, a favor, not today, but some day in the future I will call and ask for a favor. You will remember this service performed, and you will grant me that favor without hesitation or question. Is that understood? What manner of favor? The pale horse shrugged. I do not yet know this thing, but I do know that if you fail to honor our bargain at that particular time, I will be greatly displeased. He was not by nature a man who intimidated easily, but Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant was truly unnerved. The threat went unsaid, but who would want to cross such a man? The industrialist almost walked out on the absurd and frightening proposal. But he had been planning his revenge for far too long to turn back now. If the favor was too large, Cornelius knew he always had other options. Harkness was deadly, but he wasn't immortal. It would not be the first time he had used murder to get out of an inequitable contract. Very well, Cornelius said. You have a deal. When will he get sick? Harkness closed his eyes for a few seconds, as if pondering a difficult question. It is already done, the pale horse said, opening his eyes. Isaiah will see you out. Isaiah joined his employer on the balcony a few minutes later. Harkness had gone back to admiring the view. Could you read him? He's very intelligent. I had to be gentle or he would have known. 
He's got a bad tendency to shout his thoughts when he gets riled up. The servant leaned against the concrete wall and folded his arms. He even thought I might be a torch. Can you believe that? Harkness chuckled, knowing that Isaiah was far more dangerous than some mere human flame hurler. Was he truthful? Mostly, he absolutely despises this man. For what he did to him? Wouldn't you? Isaiah sounded disgusted. Stuyvesant is utterly ruthless. So am I, Harkness thought, knowing full well that Isaiah would pick that up as clearly as a high-strength radio broadcast. You don't get to such lofty positions without being dangerous. I'll have to curse him quickly. Arranging a meeting should be easy. Enough Stuyvesant will be expecting immediate results now. Isaiah left the wall and took one of the cigars from the table. I liked your little show, with closing the eyes and just wishing for somebody to die and all that. That's good theater. Of course, even he had his limits. He would actually have to touch the victim, and it took constant power thereafter to keep up the onslaught against the ministrations of menders, which he already knew this man would have. This would be an extremely draining assignment. Whatever keeps Stuyvesant nervous, Harkness shrugged. I do like the new term, though it suits me. Isaiah quoted from memory as he clipped the end from the Cuban. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts, and I looked and beheld a pale horse, and the name that sat upon him was Death. And hell followed with him, Harkness finished, smiling. Appropriate. If the favor you ask of him is too difficult, he'll have you killed. Harkness had suspected as much. He could try. Wouldn't be the first. The man's got a phobia about sickness. The Spanish flu near did him when it came through, been worrying him ever since, Isaiah said as he lit the cigar. He's scared of you. Good, the pale horse muttered, watching the people moving below, scuttling about like ants, ignorant little creatures, unaware of the truth of the world in which they lived. The chairman was about to change the world, whether any of the ants liked it or not, and that meant war. Many ants would be stepped on, but that was just too bad. It was unfortunate to be born an ant. He should be. That was part one of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Laura Haywood Corey, Christopher Chafani, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a telepathic memorandum of happiness from a pod of orcas off the Antarctic coast who have located a flock of penguins to feast upon, along with the sally of thanks and praise encoded in cryptographic bursts and the honks of pteranodons, to Robert Butner, author of Balance Point, Book 3, and the finale of the Orphan's Legacy Science Fiction Series. 
Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 